With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy. Uh, just a very dead week. Happy, happy everyone gets to do something besides from Syracuse Athletics for a week. Yeah, happy, happy figuring out what exactly happened this weekend. Um, week. Uh, there, there's not a whole lot going on. Friday, uh, fall camp starts for Syracuse football. Um, that's pretty awesome. There's plenty of hype that continues to build around the program, um, and it's nice to see some of that. So we'll we'll definitely discuss a bit of it. Um, here on this episode, but I think first and foremost, Dan, uh, Bayheim's army lost in the Super 16, uh, fell short of the Final Four for the uh, fourth time in five tries. Uh, didn't even make the uh, regional final, which is uh, unfortunate. Well, I guess they did make the regional final, but not really like Super Regional Final, whatever the format is. Um, in any case, didn't reach the equivalent of the Elite Eight, which is a bummer. Um, it seems like the Zone defense did not work uh, for long stretches of time. Uh, shots weren't falling. Uh, having three games in three days really did seem to exhaust the bigs, um, who were all you know kind of late twenties, early thirties guys. Um, in general, it seems like this is a little bit of an inflection point for for how the team's constructed. Now I wrote a little bit about that, but curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, going in, I think we were pretty excited about like the additions of guys like Andrew White and Mike Benajay. B.J. Johnson, like those kind of sharpshooting wings. Um, and we saw, you know, they all had their moments that like B.J. looked really good. I thought White had some big plays. Benichet was a little more quiet. Um, I think what we've learned, if anything, over these last couple of years is this is, I mean, and basketball in general has become this, but this is such a guard-dominated uh, tournament. And our guard play, aside from like last year when John Dillon had this crazy run over the last like, year or two, our guard play isn't always up to stuff. Um, I thought... Um, Jordan Crawford had some moments, but but there were times where he looked like he was trying to like kind of take the whole game over and wasn't quite at that place where he was good enough to do that. Um, I thought the uh, brothers aren't uh, the brotherly love team just looked so much more. Um, they just just they had way more stamina. They were faster. They were super aggressive on the boards. Um, 
And I don't know what the like age difference between our teams were, but like you could just tell the difference in, in terms of effort, even when we were shooting, you know, pretty well in the first half and we're keeping it close. Um, it was, it, it's so hard to, to win a game when you're getting out rebounded like three to one, like we were. Um, and, and the, the bigs definitely lost their legs a little bit between days two and three. And I, I don't think we played back to back to back days in previous years. The new, whatever the new layout was, I think definitely hurt us. Uh, because in game two, I thought uh, uh, Watkins had an awesome game and was a real presence. And then, he was pretty ineffective in game three. AO was having trouble getting up and down the court and obviously seemed to have some issues with like the refs. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely a time to, to kind of retool, but it's tough because generally you want to steep this like mostly in the family. I don't mind having like a Willie Reed or a, or a, or Willie Dean rather, or a Crawford jumping in to help out. But um, you want this to be like a Syracuse focused thing. And I don't know that we have like the right, type of guards floating out there um, outside of like Diefendorf and, and Gillen and, and whatnot who are, who are ready to play. So you kind of ha- have the, the, the hand that you draw. Um, it did help that Trish, I think who was been very good in this tournament before was not hurt. Um, but ultimately like, it's not like you can go out and like recruit all these guys who are like floating out there, almost like, you know, battles available in a year or two or whatever. Um, so you kind of have to play with the guys you have, but Without like the explosive guard play, I think it's it's always going to be a little tough for us uh, when we're such a when this roster has been so forward oriented the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I talked about some of the issues and what might need to be addressed this off season. No, this I guess not off season, but you know, for next year, uh, I, I think not having Trish, not having Chris McCullough um, ready to go, I, I think that definitely played a role here. I don't know if it's a deciding factor. And a lot of folks said that given how Trish has been playing um, over in Italy, that having him in there could have been a difference maker. That very well might be true. I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, all the, having so many older guys, I feel like carry a lot of the load here when we had so many younger guys coming in uh, seemed like a little, not, not to question Blackwell or, or the team construction too much, but didn't necessarily seem like, the best, you know, use of the roster. I think they're like, like Jim Beheim even alluded to, like they needed to shorten the bench. I think there was just too much, there were too many players coming in and out. There was also just the fact that like chemistry wise, like most of this team was added pretty late in the game uh, this time around. And I feel like in previous years, maybe we had a little bit more time to practice and, 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 you know, a little more cohesive team brother loves been practicing together for months. A lot of these other teams that have gone far in the event have practiced together for months um, and like you said, too, that three games in three days format um, just really, I think, broke down You know, a team that's a little more reliant on veteran players like ours is. Uh, I personally think like we're at a crossroads just in terms of like what we want this event to be and, 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 and what we want this event to be for Bayheim's Army. Like, I think having all Syracuse players keeps fans engaged. I think it makes it a, a, one of the more exciting teams and one of the more exciting alumni teams. But I guess, like, now we have to ask ourselves, though, like, what's the point of the event? Is it just to have, you know, former Syracuse players out on the court for three to five or six games? Or is it to win? Because I feel like if it's to win, uh, I'm just not sure if the current batch of, like, former Syracuse players, you know, bouncing around the G League or international play is necessarily going to be able to get that job done. So if people are fine with, and people, and that includes the players, if they're fine with, you know, likely not winning the event, then I think you can stick with, you know, a, a an almost entirely Syracuse-laden roster. I think if, if, if you want the bigger goal to be win, I'm curious if at this point 
we've reached an impasse where you might have to make it like headlining Syracuse guys, but maybe, you know, an extra body or two or three or even four that, you know, are, are folks looking to catch on to a team and maybe make some money in the process. Yeah, it's a tough balance because I don't think it's going to have the same impact if you have like even half and half. I think you want the ba- the the base to be Syracuse guys. Uh, it's not going to feel the same if it's, you know, a bunch of just like ringers thrown in there. I don't think one, you know, I don't think like maybe one to three are that big a deal. And maybe if there's like a, a, a you know, C.J. Massenburg from Buffalo in a couple of years is looking for a team to play with or like a guy from Siena or something, maybe that helps make sense. Or a guy who's like local to Syracuse but but didn't go there. Um but you don't want it to become like a, you know, it's based in Syracuse and like has like a background that wear orange, but you, you don't recognize half the players. Um, so I think honestly, like ultimately for Syracuse fans, I think seeing the Syracuse players out there is is the thing. And then winning obviously enhances it. But like the fan support's only gone up, even if we've had like up and down, up and down tournaments um, and having it in Syracuse, hopefully something they'll do again. I mean, I, I, once the dome renovations happen, they could, we've talked about this on Twitter a bit, um, a bunch of people in the community, like they could easily sell 10, 12,000 tickets, I think, to this. If they had uh, a Syracuse uh, Bayhams Army hosting at the dome, like there's no doubt in my mind they could have an exhibition uh, SU game type uh, atmosphere there. Um, and probably more rowdy too, because these games get really exciting. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to lose like the Syracuse-ness of it all. Uh, so it's a tough balance to strike. Um, and then going back to your first point, like, I, I kind of agree with the shortening of the bench. I thought, you know, well, you can probably make the argument that Warwick and, D- and Devendorf are our two best players at the tournament, and they're both in their 30s. Obviously, Warwick kind of, I mean, he only played like nine minutes the second night, so he was a little fresher, I think, uh, in game three. But, um, you know, they're not going to be there forever, but I think they can play as long as they want because they've shown they're just so good in this tournament. But beyond that, I think it would have been nice to see, like, more Dylan, more Johnson, more of those younger legs, Benajay, even who I don't think really got a chance to, to really show what he could do versus worrying about every guy um, coming in and out. And, and honestly, maybe, like, if they're going to stick with this three games and three days format, maybe having, like, you know, these are our guys for Thursday and Saturday, and we'll try to focus on other guys for Friday just to keep, like, someone's legs fresh for each game might be a way to do this versus, like, trying to run out everybody and play everyone 20 minutes and then, you know, kind of falling apart in the second half on Sunday. So um, definitely not the way you want it to go, but ultimately I think this tournament's more about just fun. I mean, for us, it's easy to say we're not the ones competing for like 150 grand each. But um, for the fans, I think it's more about like the fun camaraderie of the Syracuse fan base in the summer uh, and and kind of a thing that cuts the offseason in half um, more so than even winning. Obviously, we want them to win, but I don't think we're going to be like, well, if we never win this, it's not worth doing because it, it's so much fun for even even the couple of days that we had it this summer. Oh, yeah. I, I think you make some great points there. I actually didn't really think of like the kind of like, you know, Thursday, Saturday, or, or like just the, the separation of days, I think is, is a decent solution to keep this Syracuse-centric um, while still like putting the best team out there. Um, I do think just raises the question of like, you know, who is this for? Is it for the players who can earn money and get, you know, scouting opportunities? Or is it for the fans who are going to show up and help keep the event afloat? Um, I, I think that, that, that unfortunately, those goals might serve two different masters. I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and, and I don't think anyone has like a perfect solution there. Uh, I, I do think, you know, it's going to be interesting as some of these older guys um, kind of cycle out of the, out of the you know, Bayheim's army setup, um, who kind of takes their place. Cause I know like, you know, Devendorf is kind of, 
uh, been like more of an assistant coach, like mascot almost. Um, and, and losing him was like kind of the heart and soul of this, uh, this team and this idea uh, would definitely um, knock maybe some of the affinity, uh, if nothing else. Um, I think just to kind of summarize here, uh, getting rid of the zone is probably a good idea for, for this team. Um, anyway, especially if you're going to be involving, like, again, older players who haven't played in, in the Syracuse zone in quite some time. Um, people forget that the zone isn't like some magic elixir that you can just take before a tournament game and then automatically, like, win. Like, it takes the practice and time and talent and, and athleticism and everything else that, you know, so the kids that work under Bayheim every day have. Um, and it's no offense to the guys that, you know, didn't make it happen in this tournament, but you're not necessarily just going to carry that through, you know, into your 30s. Um, with a bunch of guys that you only started playing with like a week, week and a half ago. Um, and, and then, yeah, the, the, the youth movement stuff, like I think I already said, just I'm very curious to see what this team looks like in a few years and, and how maybe a younger crop of players and with maybe a different mentality um, could potentially be better and maybe even could be worse depending on um, who we get and, and how the tournament continues to evolve and whether the Elam ending shows up again. I think there are a lot of factors. I think the Elam ending in particular has really um, – change this event. And unfortunately, I don't think it's changed it for, for Syracuse's benefit here. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that it benefits us at all. Obviously we we've, we've won some dramatic games with it and we've definitely lost, lost some, but I don't think the Elam ending really had any, anything to play in the brotherly love game. They just kind of dominated us, but um, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I think it's one of the, like, the signature things of this tournament that sets it apart and the people are interested in. Um, and when you have like a thing, you can kind of explain that's like different than any other basketball we've seen every summer, I think that's, that has a sticking point. Um, you know, it's, it's, we have to remember also that there wouldn't have sick, play, new players cycled into this, this uh, field every year. So like, obviously we're not rooting for guys to like drop out of their NBA careers early, but in a couple of years we could have Tyler Lydon, we get a Malachi Richardson, um, you know. Let's get Mello in this guys. thing next year. Oh, God, Mello would make, <laughs> I know, I know Mello, like we, I think we brought this up every week for like two months now. Someone please sign Melo and just give him a, a last year in the NBA. It's getting ridiculous. He deserves one last year. You don't have to give him the Dwayne Wade treatment. He probably doesn't deserve that. But, like, give him, like, let him play himself out of the league. Um, but then after that, Melo would be <laughs> just unbelievable. You know, like, if they if Melo played and they put it in the Dome, they would probably sell 17, 18,000 tickets. Minimum, to be honest. Yeah, it would be nuts. Yeah, they, I, they blow the roof off the place, and honestly, Melo would be the best player in the field. <laughs> Mel would either be the best player in the field or he would just play like he would just not come back on defense at all and it'd be kind of sad. But um if you wanted to be, I think he probably would be the best player in the field. Um yeah, I mean that's the dream. But like beyond him, like there we're gonna have new guys available every year and hopefully we keep it fresh. And I know Belby's worked really hard. He thought, you know, we were talking about last week, like the, the additions we made this year were really impressive on paper. It didn't work out totally, but I think we're still kind of finding ourselves. Maybe they have to coach a team once he retires in, in 18 years. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it was interesting to have him there. It was interesting to have him, like, kind of weighing in a bit. Um, I really enjoyed that, like, I think it was Greenberg that was like, oh, yeah, the guys can just jump back in the zone. Like, they haven't played – like, it was yesterday they were playing, and Beheim gets on the mic, and, like, one of the first things he said, I think in the – I think it was Friday, uh, was like, oh, they really shouldn't be playing so <laughs> – yeah, he, uh, I mean, you know, he, there, there's a reason he's a Hall of Famer and it's because he understands, like, like, like I said in the article, like I said on here already, like the zone works in a time and a place and there's circumstances beyond just being in a tournament that make the zone effective. 
And I think like because of the recent uh, random success in the tournament, it's kind of become this um, like weird, like rabbit out of a hat to people. And, and that's not at all what it is. And it was good of Jim to, to, to you know, refute it there, at least on, on the broadcast, not so much on Twitter. Um, but then it was... Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yes, quote-unquote Jim Beheim. Um, after about uh, 12 hours after saying they shouldn't be playing Zone on TV, um, said they should definitely be playing Zone on Twitter, so you can read between the lines on that one. Um, oh, God. It's also a much, uh, a much different animal when you have, like, 35-year-olds not closing out versus, like, I, obviously we have 20-something-year-olds not closing out in Syracuse games, but when it's really on, like, the zone looks so much different when you have guys who have been pl- practicing it for months on end, years on end, uh, versus, you know, guys who are, you know, have other have other things on, on the line in the TBT. Like, no one must get hurt. Um, obviously, we saw Perry Ellis get hurt in the Kansas alumni game, and they ended up losing in the first round. Um, these guys have other careers to go back to, so it's a little understandable while, while they're playing hard, obviously, uh, and overseas elite, those guys have all made small fortunes on this thing now. Um, you know, guys, most of these guys are playing overseas and they're playing somewhere. So you, you, it's understandable that, like, they're not going to be sprinting out on every closeout. But it, it does make it – it's a different experience watching the 2-3 when it's guys just kind of relearning it for the first time over the last, like, three weeks or so. Yeah, I – again, I, I think, the, think that anyone – at this point, harping on the zone as like a signature for this group, like to be honest, including everyone involved with the team, like, and, and I love all those guys. And, and, and obviously like, it's great to be involved with them where we can, but like, if we're going to stick to the zone, like it's not going to work. <laughs> so, 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 so maybe that's the fix. Um, and then you can scrap the rest of my ideas and any other ones and, and just invite all Syracuse players don't play zone and you might actually be better off. But um, I, I think in any case, th- this team's going to look, radically different in some way, shape, or form next year. I think it's a, it's fine to have as a wrinkle, and it's, like, kind of a funny little thing. And it's worked, you know, we've had some deep runs in this tournament, but ultimately, um, I, these guys are playing man-to-man pretty much everywhere they're playing right now. Uh, obviously, I don't know all these European teams inside and out, but I assume most of them are playing man most of the time. So even with the background of, like, Syracuse's zone team, like, these guys aren't playing zone all year. So you, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's, 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 I get why the inclination is there, but it doesn't really benefit anyone to like try to shoehorn the Bayhams Army team into the zone, into the zone when they're probably picking it up. What maybe a month before, probably not even. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to put it in a football terms, this is like having a team. This is like having guys play pro style offense for fifteen, sixteen years, and then bringing them back to to run a spread. Um, you know, no huddle offense like decades after they, they, they ran it the last time. Like there's no, like, it's not like there's, there's, there's no connective tissue, but there certainly isn't the, the same amount of connective tissue anymore. Once you put some time between, you know, when you last played zone and, and the, and the amount of basketball experience these guys have had since then. Yeah. It also kind of goes against like what we always say as Syracuse fans were like, when there's those lazy criticisms of the zone, it's like being a, you know, low effort defense or like whatever, Bomani Jones, who I generally love, his zone stuff is so ridiculous and petty. Um, but like by saying like, Oh yeah, they should just rule out the zone. Like they played 15 years ago. Like that kind of goes against everything we all know about the zone. It's not easy. It's not something you just like go say, Oh, go do it. Like Bayham zone is attacking. It's aggressive. It's uh, fast. Um, it's all the things that like go against the stereotypes that people have of it. So then to say like, 
oh, these guys who played for Syracuse between like one and literally 15 years ago should just go be able to go do it like perfectly. It just doesn't like that doesn't add up. So hopefully we'll see some adjustments next year. But ultimately, like it was still a fun event. Um, everyone who went up there seemed to like have an awesome time. And I, I know there are people who flew in from like Alaska and Texas and everywhere else in the world, uh, which is crazy. Uh, but that should really prove what the Syracuse fan base is all about. And like, honestly, even if Bayheim's army bowed out early, I think the Syracuse fan base is like a real winner in this whole thing because it was no joke. People saw what this fan base does in the middle of July when there's no basketball on the horizon for months, they were out there packing uh, SRC and I have no doubt they would have packed pretty much any arena in upstate if they wanted to. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of props to, uh, to Syracuse fans for really showing out to this. Um, you know, other fan bases showed up to, to their respective events, but I think Syracuse really got into it, uh, really kind of showed out on national television, uh, had, you know, the camera on them and, and definitely delivered. So uh, I, I think, you know, it left a really big impression on the uh, inbound freshmen. Um, I don't know. I did, wasn't paying enough attention to see if they had brought any uh, potential recruits up uh, during, but it might not have been a bad idea, you know, and I, I think I forgot who said it. Um, of, of one of the, the new freshmen that was, you know, just talking about like, you know, once you play here, you're a legend for life. Um, and and th- I think that is something unique to Syracuse and something unique to the family aspect of the program. Um, so uh, hopefully the, this, this actually pays some dividends, um, even if we don't see them for a couple of years. Um, I, I, th- I think having this event up in Syracuse in particular really does, um, you know, Get, get those eyeballs on the fan base, maybe in ways that, that just others can't necessarily match, at least at, at the volume, even if, even if they do with, with maybe the same passion. Yeah, it was cool. I hope they get to do it again. Obviously, I loved having it down here in New York. I went uh, the last two or three years. And even in, like, in Brooklyn, at LA Brooklyn, like, there'd be probably two-thirds of the arena would be Syracuse minimum. Um, so, I mean, anywhere on the East Coast, you're going to have SU fans. But having it in Q's, you really saw, like, the full – I mean, you have people standing outside for like four hours before tip off because it was general admission, which is just like awesome. Like it's, it's just, I don't think you get that everywhere. I think you'll get like, you know, really good fan support wherever they host it. I'm sure Wichita was cool uh, having Kansas and Wichita teams there. I don't think um, all of them were quite into it as into it. And we've been like kind of, even without winning it, like we've been one of the, the foundational blocks of this whole tournament. I, I think, I assume the TBT people would say that too. Um, it's been you know, we're one of the first big programs to latch onto this thing with an alumni team in a big way versus like having a handful of guys. Agreed, agreed. Well done, SU fans, and we'll uh, see everybody for it next year. Um, before we get to halftime, just wanted to focus quick on football recruiting and the fact that, unfortunately, we struck out on Bryce Gowdy today, uh, today being Tuesday. Sorry, it is trash day. and One of my neighbors has decided to pick this exact moment to take out the garbage, but yeah, we missed out on Bryce Gowdy. For those who unfortunately watched that horrendous live stream where um, a camera person was in front of the god-awful stream the entire time um, where it was so fuzzy and the reception was so bad that you could not really hear anything that anyone said, Um, I I mistook one commitment for another because you honestly couldn't hear anything again. Um, it was pretty horrendous. Uh, I would highly recommend people don't do that, um, which would be, you know, picking a random bar with questionable reception to try to host a live stream that had 4,000 people watching it um, and expecting it to work without like professional equipment because it definitely did not. Um, but yeah, 
Bryce Gowdy, four-star uh, receiver from Florida, is uh, a fringe top 300 guy, uh, would have been the best recruit in the class by a long shot. Um, unfortunately, he picked Georgia Tech. Uh, for those who are surprised to hear that, uh, they have a different system now. They're not running the option anymore. So players actually want to go there because it's in Atlanta and it's a hub for, you know, obviously football fandom, um, plenty of scouts, things like that. So that's a bummer, but these things happen. Um, SU did get two uh, three-star commitments over the, uh, over the weekend, which, uh, which puts us around the top 60 or so uh, in the country with, with 13 guys committed. I think that's fine for now. I, I think we're going to be playing a long game on a lot of uh, a lot of blue chip guys. My my only fear there is that if we don't land those guys, I'm not really sure what we're going to have. I'm not sure who we're going to be able to close on um, late. If for some reason, like we don't land some of those blue chip guys, because I know, like especially at the quarterback position, there's not necessarily anybody left uh, that we have a good shot at in this class, which is going to become a persistent problem is more. And I know we've talked about this as more quarterbacks continue to uh, want immediate playing time. And we have our second straight kind of entrenched quarterback uh, at the top of the depth chart now. Yeah. Quarterback can become a tricky issue, especially if DeVito leaves early. It's obviously very, very early to say that he will or will not. We have to see how he plays. Um, but like if we just miss a quarterback in one class, which I know is not ideal. I don't think it's the end of the world, especially, I mean, we've discussed this before, like, with the number of transfers at that position, I think there are more guys available after the fact than there have been before. So I, I think we can afford to miss out on guys and not take like a flyer on a guy we don't really think can fit in the system. Um, you don't want it to go two years though. Like you really you sh- you want to ideally add a quarterback every year, and then just so many guys do transfer on the other end of it, um, including at Syracuse, that you want to like make sure you always have guys to fill in those spots. Um, like you said, we got a couple of commitments this weekend. Uh, ben LeBros, the safety from Canada, from Montreal, um, was unranked when he committed. And I just pulled up our 24-7 page. And he is all of a sudden our number one ranked recruit. So people bet on that pretty fast. Uh, he's uh, number 603 in the country. So he's actually pretty far ahead. We also got Stephen Mahar, who is our now our number two ranked recruit, who's a tight end at Rochester, uh, number 33 tight end in the country. Um, so, you know, our last two commits are our two best commits, according to the rival, the 24-7 rankings. Doesn't mean everything, but it's, you know, I guess you'll take it. It's a nice sign. Um, like you said, I think we are playing a little bit of a longer game on some of the, the top guys on our board. Um, that is a tricky – we've seen some of our other coaches go in both directions with it, and that could be a tricky game to play. Um, but last season, uh, I think we got our two best guys, uh, at least on paper, um, Michael, jo- uh, Michael Jones and Lee Pod, but I think they were both pretty late commits, weren't they? Yeah, we, uh, we got – both of them in November. Neil Nunn recommitted in November as well. Yeah, so uh, those are our top three guys. So yeah, it's not it's not like you know there's no a like this isn't really outside of the classes we've gotten, and also having 13 guys isn't like a huge class at this point. Um, there are teams with well over 20, um, but this isn't like you know I don't think it's quite cause for panic yet. Yeah. I think the quarterback thing is like slightly dis- uh, disconcerting, but there's a lot of recruiting time left. Yeah. A lot, a lot of recruiting time left, but I think the quarterback thing, I, I know the last two years we've, we've had late flips kind of help us out. Um, Chance Amy's already out of the program. Uh, meanwhile, David Summers is still here. Uh, I think Summers seems like a better chance to stay, if only because we flipped him earlier. Um, there's some other connections there. I know he's like personal coach. He's also local. 
yeah, he's more local. His personal coach is the same as DeVito's personal coach. Um, realistically, like I, I think, you know, Summers knows what he's getting into where he's sitting for a minimum of two years probably. Um, and just in case like DeVito leaves after a, a stellar redshirt junior year, who knows? But in any case, yeah, I, I think a lot of quarterbacks, especially like the blue chip guys, they want to put up big numbers, but they look at that and they see Syracuse as a place they can do that. But unfortunately, um, just because of, again, the fact that we had a four-year starter and then have what's potentially going to be a three-year starter, uh, nobody's necessarily looking to get themselves into that fight um, when, when it seems like there's already a, a, a clear a clear starter who, in, especially in Tommy's case, you know, has the pedigree and, and the recruiting background um, to back it up. So we'll, we'll see there. I, I think that I think that we still have a chance to close on, on plenty of blue chip guys here. Uh, but at the same time, like, I don't want to necessarily miss out on, um, you know, more attainable guys who are still like high threes. I mean, I'll, I'll, again, you know, this just like everybody else does a lot of, a lot of SU's best players have been, you know, your, your mid to high three-star play guys over the last decade, decade and a half, some of them even lower. So, you know, Dino's, Dino's staff has the unique ability to combine, um, solid recruiting a solid recruiting uptick with a really good ability to coach guys up too. like they, they know how to take advantage of talent but at the same time also know how to coax more talent out of guys uh, that's not usually a combination you see especially like at the Syracuse program range it's usually one or the other so it's uh it's, it's definitely great to see I just hope that you know we, we start seeing that that like tangible talent upgrades start to swing up further if uh if we cash in on another like you know eight nine win season yeah and sometimes the the benefits of recruiting kind of play out uh or the benefits to recruiting kind of play out like a full year ahead because like obviously the coaching staff generally speaking like in earnest gets started on the like we got really started on the 2020 class last offseason um this offseason's like we're we're really drilling down in 2020 and then we're starting starting on 2021. Um, so next year, next February is where we're really going to probably see most of the results of this past season, just because they have like the full, full cycle to sell that 10 wins and hopefully back it up with another nice season this fall. Um, so you don't always see like the immediate recruiting bump the next, the year after a big season. It's often the year following that where um, players have a full, like, you know, the full cycle to digest it versus like you win 10 games and you're trying to rush into this kid's, you know, text messages when they haven't really heard of you or weren't really considering you before that because, you know, you were a four-win team. Um, so uh, it's, I, I just wouldn't get concerned about recruiting rankings in general at Syracuse just because we have such a unique uh, set of obstacles to, to jump over to like really hit where some of these other programs are. And we're also very developmental. Um, but also because I don't think the 10-win season was going to magically reverse our fortunes overnight. It's a, a little bit of a slower burn. Yeah, I agree. In, in all likelihood, we're looking at, you know, late closures on, on this class. And then, you know, 2021, assuming Babers, et cetera, are all still there. That's when you start seeing like a huge, huge jump. If, if you end up having another 8-9-win season where we're top 25, then, then people start seeing SU as a, a solid, stable, rising program. Um, and, and again, that's when we start cashing in on that potential. Um, before we get to halftime, why don't we take a little bit of a break for a word from our sponsor? 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. So, uh, Dan, what have you been drinking? Uh, not a hugely active week on the beer scene because I was and am still kind of recovering from this stupid never-ending cold I have. Um, I did have a couple different things from Half Full Brewery in my hometown of Stanford, uh, which were brought into the city. Um, notably, their Supernova uh, and their Within Reach, um, which are two of their better offerings. Uh, one is a sour, uh, one is a pale. Uh, and then I had a couple uh, of uh, metrics from Industrial Arts. Um, Industrial Arts is a Pilsner offering. Um, not my favorite thing from them. Uh, I'm not a huge Pilsner drinker in general, but Industrial Arts does everything pretty well, so still very enjoyable. Nice. Yeah, I didn't have like a super, super busy weekend. I had some wine that I had brought back from Italy last year on Friday, um, celebrating our anniversary. And since my wife was pregnant right after we got back from Italy, wasn't really able to drink it for, <laughs> for nine months. And then, you know, want to actually enjoy it. So we saved it for our anniversary. Uh, it's pretty good wine. I don't remember, really remember any of the details on it, but that was pretty good. Uh, had a Stone Tropica Thunder Lager, a Firestone 805 Blonde. Uh, I was at a really good Mexican restaurant and had a couple uh, Mexican craft beers. Had the uh, from uh, Aguamala, uh, the uh, Serena uh, Pilsner. That was pretty good. And then the uh, Perro del Mar from uh, Wendlot. Uh, I think all of these were from like the Yucatan area of Mexico. I know that their general like theme in the restaurant was that. So I'm assuming they probably got most of them from there. Uh, that was an IPA that was pretty good, actually, um, from Mexico. So Mexico's upping their craft beer game. Those were definitely enjoyable. Also had a really good gin and tonic at, uh, at the Mexican place, which you would not think. But, uh, but I was impressed the, the whole thing was put together by him, like kind of theatrically dual wielding uh, gin and tonic um, in a way that seemed aggressive, but again, yielded a good gin and tonic. So I was fine with it. Very nice. Yes, I will be uh, a very different look uh, beer section next time I'm on in two weeks because I will be in Italy next week. Um, probably drinking a lot of wine as well, but uh, I don't know that I'll remember any of the names of them. But I will mark down the beers as I uh, as I as I try them. I know you give me a pretty decent list to look out for. If you hit one of those, the Marche uh, Siete Venuti Fa, the one in Rome, is probably and, and uh, you know former news magician uh, contributor Aaron Goldfarb will also uh, attest to this. It's one of the better beer bars I've ever been to. Oh, okay. Well, duly yeah, noted. So- <laughs> so that one is, is definitely worth going to, but yeah, there, there, there's plenty of beer in, in Italy. It's a growing beer scene, but obviously you're there for the wine um, when you're drinking. And, and, and I wouldn't blame anyone for, uh, for indulging more in that. I know I did for like the first half of the trip when I was there last, uh, last January. Oh, it, it will definitely be a wine heavy trip, but you know, there's not every day I can go try beers from uh, other countries besides like the stuff that it's over here pretty readily. Uh, not that I, not that I'm gonna like, you know. I don't think I'm gonna be looking out for like Peronis everywhere, but um, I'll definitely 
look out for some of the other more more uh, hyper local stuff. Um, and also, like, I'm gonna want a beer now and then. I can't drink that much wine. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. Well, uh, Dan will be enjoying Italy next week, and we will have Kevin on actually. So you'll uh, you'll get an even more confusing episode where Kevin and I sound very similar on podcast. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. Um, I know at least Dan and I sound different enough where you can tell, tell us apart. It's honestly tough with Kevin. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give it a shot though. Kevin will be the one dropping Drake references while John's the one dropping Kanye references. It's going to be the easiest way to figure this out. That's fair. Uh, the second half of this podcast today is about, uh, I think, at least my favorite non-ACC uh, conference, and maybe Dan's too, uh, the Pac-12. The, uh, uh, as of now, I wouldn't say, but like historically, maybe. It's just not been great the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, they're fun at the very least. Like They are fun. The game's still enjoyable, even if like the conference just can't get out of its own way lately. I think the Big 12 might have eclipsed it for fun, although the Big 12 has the problem where like Oklahoma's just so much better. Right. Everyone, not to go into this too far because we talked about the 12 already, but like um, the Pac 12 is still probably a little more balanced in terms of like most games. You don't know exactly who's going to win, even if Washington is involved. Like they strike together enough. Like if he wins, that it's not like they can just be handed anything. But I think even the brand of playing the Big 12 might be a little more fun over the last two years. But you know, I'm not going to turn down a Pac 12 after dark game after I've gotten off the lawn work shift watching other non other conferences. Um, I will almost always stay up for it unless it's like Oregon State, Colorado. So yeah, I mean, I, I love the Pac-12. It, it's it it uh, it's a nice like aperitif for a, a good college football Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's fun. It's weird. Um, I think it, it it allows me a chance to actually go to a live football game the same Saturday as covering Syracuse because usually SU games are on much earlier for me, while the Pac-12 games are on later. So there's always a chance that I can go see a USC or UCLA game, although I'm not doing much of that lately based on the reason that you just heard the background. But, uh, yeah, Dan, who do you uh, – I guess we'll just start at the top. Who do you think is going to win this league? Because I feel like Washington is an overwhelming favorite, but, like, Oregon's lurking. Everyone's pretty high on Utah, but I don't know if the Utes have really brought in the level of talent that makes them runaway favorites in the South, even though the rest of the teams in that division are potentially a train wreck. Yeah, I think Utah, the strength in Utah is that the South is just a mess. And I think Utah's not a mess. I just don't know what their ceiling is. Um, I think they, they're they a very unique Pac-12 team in that they're like, they're like the Big Ten team of the Pac-12, which, uh, besides Stanford, obviously. But there's some utility in that and being, like, different. Um, and they're just very steady. Um I just don't know that they're going to reach the ceiling to beat whoever the North champion is. Um, in the North, I, I think it's going to be Washington, Oregon. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the post-Jake Browning uh, dogs are. Obviously, Jacob Eason was a five-star recruit. He was at Georgia, got basically lost the job because of injury. Um, Jake Fromm stepped in and was really good and led them to the title game. So you kind of understand where, where Eason's coming from when he transferred back home. Uh, to Washington, so he, it's, it, you know, we've seen some flashes from him, it's it's hard to, like, we don't have a huge sampling of what he can do, and he's been in Washington for a bit now, um, so there's talent there, um, I just feel like Washington's lost so much uh, around the quarterback position over the last couple of years, uh, it's going to, 
be kind of uh, interesting to see how they how they recruit because they've had such strong receiver play uh, and such a strong running game over the last couple of years. Um, I think Oregon might be the most interesting team and one I'm kind of leaning towards. Uh, obviously, Justin Herbert is a, is a potential first round pick, um, but I thought they were really not that far off last year. They just they they had some like first year jitters. I think obviously losing what was the the Stanford game they lost was just. Absolutely. Oh yeah, that that, um, that was just just a brutal mistake laden game. That like really, if they I'm looking at the schedule in front of me, if they had won that game, they would have. They still wouldn't have won the division, but they would have been six and three in Pac-12 play, and they would have had a ten win season. So it kind yeah. of felt like that. It didn't like derail them. Obviously, they they you know had some nice games after that, but things like. I think if they had won that game, they would have picked up like so much momentum. It would have been, you, you could almost see like the rest of the season looking a little different for them. I mean, they beat um, Washington, even, so, so they yeah. obviously, they're obviously doing something right. Yeah, so like I just don't think they're that far away. Um, so I, I kind of like Oregon. I, I obviously we should talk about this at the end, but I, I think in in the uh, in the effort to be a little different, and obviously it's not going out that far on limb. They're Oregon. They've been really good for you know two decades now. But I, I kind of like the Ducks to, to kind of raise up here. I think uh, Kristen Wall has quietly done a really nice job there after that, like, his first game was as interim head coach, and they got bludgeoned by Boise State in that bowl game, and that kind of raised some questions. But he was a good head coach at FIU. He was experienced. It's not like the most obvious fit because he's not from there, but he seems to uh, have done most everything right since then. And I think we'd be talking a lot differently about them if they had not lost that Stanford game last year and if, had the, if they had really challenged Washington uh, for the division last season. Yeah, I mean, they're a different type of team. Like, obviously, like, you know, the the Michigan State 7-6 bowl win is, like, horrendous. But for the most part, like, they're a, they're a really solid, like, team that I think has, other than Washington, has the, like, highest floor of anyone in the Pac-12. I think that, like, recent recruiting, you're not going to really see the benefit of this maybe for another year or two. But – you know, they, they recruited right like recruiting right now, like a top 20, top 25 level, which like they were really weren't doing a ton of even under like Chip Kelly and like Mark, in the early part of the Mark Helfrich regime. So like this is a very different program than what we saw even in even at its like peak. I think Washington's still recruiting at a much higher level. Um, Stanford is, too, to be honest. But Stanford uh, recruiting just looks a little bit different because, you know, it's it's usually a lot smaller classes. They're getting four year guys. Um, and it can look top heavy because if they end up as they did a couple of years ago, I think they had like a 13 player class and like four of them were like five stars. So therefore like they look like an insanely good class and they were, um, based on like the average talent, but at the same time, like because of how everything works at Stanford, that talent is, is, is matriculating slowly. Um, but yes, I think Oregon's a year or two out from really having like, you know, you could be looking at the ducks as, as a potential national title contender by next year. Um, even, even without Herbert, uh, I think Washington is just so well coached by Peterson that I think that there's still the odds on favorite and they just have so much more talent than everybody that isn't USC, um, which is probably a good place to go next. The Trojans have a difficult schedule. Um, and I think if they lose more than four games that Clay Helton's fired. Yeah. It's not, I mean, honestly, like even, even eight and four, I don't know. That would save his job. I think it would depend on what those four, those those eight wins were. I think um, if they go eight and four, they have a chance to win the South. I think if they win the South, that's enough to keep them around. 
Yeah, I mean, then then you have like one of those really tough, tough things. The question is like, are the Urban Meyer rumors real? Like, if you can go get Urban Meyer, put aside all of the moral implications of that, um, which I think USC would gladly do. Um, Apple. I think, <laughs> I, yeah, I think USC would not be that concerned about it. Um, you probably make the move unless Helen does something where you like just can't fire him. Um, if those aren't true, then I think USC is a very attractive job. It's just like they just make such weird hires all the time. There was the last non-weird hire. Even I mean, we've talked, we discussed this enough, but like even uh, even Pete Carroll was a weird hire at the time, and obviously that one worked out. But like they're just such a confounding team where every time there's a potential opening. It's bandied about like, oh, they you know this guy or this guy or this guy, and they never do. They take someone, uh, either just ripped from their family tree, or someone just kind of confounding. Um, I mean, I guess Kiffin, like people got why also but, like, weird. It was still weird enough in that they were getting the guy from Tennessee who just went seven and six to Tennessee, was run out of town in Oakland, um, and like, cool. yeah, he was a, a terrible guy, but it wasn't like he had done so much at Tennessee in one year, aside from like run up a ton of recruiting violations that you would uh, that you would say like, oh, he was definitely like ready to take that step. See, Oregon would have like, sorry, Orgeron would have made sense, not from a like where he's from standpoint, but from the fact that he came in, took over, did so well standpoint that like it would have made sense to hire him instead of Helton. Orgeron would have made sense in the same exact way where it made sense when else you hired him. Like he got, you saw enough there where you're like, he you know, might be the guy, and if he's not, we'll find out pretty quickly. And at LSU, like, I think there was reason to think that wasn't the most inspired hire, but he showed enough post less miles where you're like, let's give him a year, and we're LSU, in worst case, if we can dump him pretty easily. Um, and I think USC could have done the same thing. Instead, they let him walk, and they went with Helton, which uh, ugh, uh, I think, I, I guess, I, I'm still not totally sold on Coach O, but I think Coach O has shown at LSU that he will – he know he's kind of learned what he doesn't know, and he will surround himself with like really high level guys. Like David Heldon, Heldon tried that this offseason, Admittedly, he didn't know that his offensive coordinator was going to get hired by the Arizona Cardinals. That's very fair. That was <laughs> that was a very inspired hire that lasted about a month. Well, I mean, we, we, we talked about it at the time. Cliff Cliff is made for this place. Oh, like, uh, Cliff at USC was going to be so exciting. Yeah, Cl- Cliff at USC was going to be so exciting because then you were going to get the inevitably got the head coaching job somehow. Oh yeah, like like that happened, or just like the TMZ stories every weekend. Cliff, like, Cliff hanging out with uh, with like Jimmy Garoppolo somewhere, and and two uh, people to be named later. No, it'd be Cliff, Cliff and, and and Jared Goff just like <laughs> balling out every weekend in Hollywood. Oh, but God. yeah, the, the last USC hire that made any sort of sense is probably Paul Hackett. Yeah, which. And still, like, yeah, like, I mean, Hackett made sense at the time. He He's from Vermont, but he went to UC Davis and played quarterback there. Um, he was an assistant uh, at USC from 76 to 1980. Um, and then after time as a position coach and a head coach um, in the NFL, he came back to USC in the late 90s. So Hackett sort of made sense. And that's... I mean, and, and yeah, well, yeah, he made sense, and Larry Smith made sense, too. Because Larry Smith went from Arizona, where he coached for six years, uh, to USC, where he coached five. So, like, Larry Smith also made sense. But it's been a while. 
Yeah, at, at this point, we're looking almost 20 years since a USC hires made any sense. Um, obviously, we're talking about USC a little bit more because um, the obvious kind of, you know, elephant in the room is that if Clay Helton's fired, if Syracuse wins like eight or nine games, there, I think, is a decent likelihood, assuming the Urban Meyer rumors are false, that USC's uh, looking at Dino Babers. USC is on the like very, very short list of, of schools that can hire him away. And I'm not going to worry about it, if only because if Dino has us winning eight or nine games, then that's certainly a pretty good parting gift, and it has us pretty well situated on the way out. Yeah, I mean, if you don't lose your coach to USC, like you, it's it's kind of like you just put your hands up and say like we did what we could, especially if like the what we think his pay is like uh, based on like what's out there um, sounds very competitive. Like there aren't going to be that many schools that can just go in. Like we're not going to lose Dino to like Northwestern. Northwestern. Which, like, they, which, they, they wouldn't hire Fit, they wouldn't fire Fitzgerald. But the point being, yeah, we're not we're not going to lose him to a peer program. And I don't even think we could lose him to like the bottom half of the SEC. I think there's really like it's the top half of the SEC, USC, Texas, Oklahoma, and like the top third of the Big Ten, and that's it. Like, I mean, I'd say Florida State too, and Clemson. Yeah, that's really it. Yeah, the schools that really worry me, like I don't think Texas, I don't think Herman's going anywhere. If no. Riley was to leave for the NFL, I don't know. I think Oklahoma would probably go bigger. I think they would either keep it in house or they would go bigger with it. Um, USC scares me enough, but I think the Meyer rumors are our friend. Um, Auburn, I, I think, honestly, scares me more than anywhere. Um, but if you're Dino, don't you like? Don't you read that? I know we talked about this a million times. If 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 you're him, don't you read that situation and go, "There is no winning here." Yes, you definitely are concerned about that. Like, like at least at USC, like, like you can go eleven and one and be a legend. If you win, if you win a bunch of Rose Bowls, like, like you're, you're great. Yeah. At, at, at Auburn, if you if you win a bunch of Sugar Bowls, but Alabama played in three playoffs in five years, you're fired. <laughs> Auburn's a great, great job. The second Saban retires. Oh, 100 percent. Um, another place that scares me a little bit. Um, and it's not his. Well, he has kind of kind of questions there. What if uh, D'Antonio is out in Michigan State? That would scare me a little bit. I mean, a little bit. They definitely have the money to hire him. It's just whether or not. Like, but he's got to. It's the same. It's the Auburn situation, just like with with better uh, expectations. Yeah, although there's no one entrenched there like uh, like like uh, Saban is in Alabama. Like, no, but I mean, off. just in terms of like Michigan, Penn State, and Ohio State are so difficult to get past. That like you have to hope for a perfect storm to do it. Another scary one would be James Franklin has some USC rumors around him. If Franklin went to USC, Penn State's scary. Oh, but I mean, the, the Penn State would hire him in a second. There's there's zero chance that that, that we could hang on, which would kill me. I, I I would hate them so much more than I already do. That would that would be tough because they're like they're kind of they're not a rival anymore, but they're like. They're, they're right there, and we have right. to against them all the time. For, like, anyone that's, like, on the bottom fringe of their place and on the top fringe of ours, we are always against them. So, yeah, that would be really annoying. But there aren't that many places. Like, I think there's maybe 15 to 20 schools in general, regardless of situation, they have to be kind of worried about. And then once you plug in, like, situation, it's far fewer. So 
Um, it's not anything to like super super worried about. USC, I think, like I think we are probably putting more connections in there than like USC fans are. I don't think Dino Babers is like the top of of uh, Reign of Troy's list. If uh, yeah. I haven't looked and see what they've written about it, but I've I've, I, I've I, talked I, to a decent amount of USC fans, and everybody knows who Dino is. Yeah, but I think that's because they're talking to you too. Yeah, that's fair. If they uh, weren't talking to Syracuse person, I don't know that he'd be like the number one guy. Um, so we'll see. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, U.S. Helton's toast, though. Like, Helton needs to do a lot this year, and I don't know that he has the depth of program to do it right now. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Speaking of coaches that could be toast, I think surprisingly, and this could be another scary one, um, UCLA, what the hell is going on with Chip Kelly? I I mean, you know way better than me being out there. It, from from the East Coast, it seems like UCLA is a little more patient, but I think shit needs not to lately. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, I, I think either way, like UCLA doesn't necessarily need to go win eight games this year. I think they need to show a like serious step forward in terms of on the field um, ability, even if it doesn't totally translate into like big wins. They need uh, to make a ball game. South is so open. Yeah, like a bowl game, I think is reasonable. Um, but in the South, like, there are so many wins on the table. Like, you would hope, even if it's not, like, a huge leap forward that, like, you can pick off an Arizona school, uh, uh, you know, and a couple of these other schools that are kind of lost in the abyss here. Colorado. Yeah, I, that, that, that's a problem. Like, like Colorado, Colorado has its own issues that we've, like, discussed in previous years. Um, the Arizona schools are always going to be, like, kind of talent poor and have to hope that they can catch enough kids through the cracks, you know, in Southern California. Like you, we, we've said this too before. Like UCLA and USC have no have no excuse to not have two of the four best um, recruiting classes every year because of the local talent pool. But like, yeah, UCLA should be able to, in, in theory, pick off. Like, but then you look at the schedule. Like at Cincinnati, that was dumb. Like San Diego State at the Rose Bowl, that could be dumb. Oklahoma, that could also be dumb. Like they might have scheduled themselves an zero and three start to the season in non conference before they even get into conference play, which starts with tricky trips at Washington State and at Arizona. You might not win a game until October 5th against Oregon State. And then, That's really hard to recover from. Yeah, like yeah, once you do that, like you're mostly screwed. I mean, last year they started 0-5 and, and then finished 3-9. and I wonder how much, how in the ear of the UCLA brass Kelly is in referring to this exact thing because I don't think any of those games except for maybe the Cincinnati game were scheduled when he was hired. Like, I think those were already on the books. And even if you were like scheduled Cincinnati when fans and like people didn't know where that program was, Cincinnati's usually pretty good. It was a pretty safe bet that Cincinnati would at least be respectable. If so not, why are you going to Cincinnati? <laughs> yeah, that's just a dumb, that's a dumb game. Oklahoma is not, I mean, I get where you, you probably scheduled that a long time ago. And like you, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So you like you worked that one off. Um, San Diego State's not going to ever be an easy game. That team's never terrible. Like, that was actually a recent schedule. Like they like San Diego like got games against all the all the Arizona and all the Southern California schools like on the schedule like very recently. We should hire that person. 
Yeah, seriously. We should hire their scheduling person. Like, yeah, you seem to figure it out. I had to fix last minute scheduling. No, I think the problem with UCLA too is like their uh, their recruiting class this year was a joke. Like, I, I know Bud Elliott's talked a little bit about this. Um, they Chip Kelly thinks that he's still like Oregon's Chip Kelly, mm. so he swung for the fences on all these kids, and then didn't have a plan B set up. Were they the ones who? I remember Bud writing this. I don't remember exactly what the thing was, but I'm pretty sure it was that they just didn't offer anyone. Like they, yeah, were, like they just they didn't bother offering like, like a third of the players that most schools do. And then when they missed a lot of them, they just didn't have the the the. I mean, that this is why you offer a million kids. You want the 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 groundwork like lead, and that's why you have things like not typical offers, and you have all this other BS. And like maybe that's not the best way to do it, but realistically, like you have to play the game everyone's playing. Because when one school has 300 offers out to fill 20 to 25 spots, and a lot of kids think they can go there, and you're UCLA and you have 87 offers out, and uh, a lot of kids, maybe you hear from them once in a while, but don't actually think they can go there, like, you're putting yourself way behind the eight ball for when you miss. Yeah, so they could be screwed if not now. Like, when, when this class, which is, like, far behind what, like, Jim Morrow was getting at the back end of his time, like... When that class becomes like your veterans, like that could that could be a little problematic. Like even if it's not right in this immediate term, it could be very problematic. Like in a year or two, that when you sick. have like a top fifty-ish class compared to your like top twenty-ish classes that Mara was bringing in. We just heard the Wilhelm scream coming from uh, from from uh, Pasadena. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I know we have to wrap up here, but. Uh, Dan, so you're going with Oregon, and, and assuming you're going with Utah? Yeah, I'm going to go Oregon over Utah. Um, I think I think the North is just so much better than the South. Even, like, like who's the worst team in the in the North? Probably – Oregon State by a mile. Oh, it's Oregon State. Yeah, okay. Who's the second it, It's always going to be Oregon State. Uh, yeah, I kind of forgot about them. Um, Oregon State, it, also in this conference. You know what? The second worst team in the North could be – Cal. It's either Cal, Stanford, or Washington State. Yeah. Um, I all think Cal could actually be pretty good this year. Um, all those teams are probably better than the the, the third best team in the South. Like, I'd say the second best team, to be honest. I, I, like, realistically, like it's probably a toss up between USC, UCLA, like Cal, Stanford. I feel like all four California schools, like you could, I feel like they're all hanging in that seven to five range this year. Yeah, because like I think Cal, who has been pretty rough recently, um, I, there was just a thing today where uh, Sonny Dykes basically said he wasn't a good fit there, and that's an interesting thing to see someone admit. Um, because we kind of knew that when he got there. Yeah, no, we knew that when he got there, but like you kind of talk yourself into it because you think that offense travels and it doesn't always. Um, I think Wilcox has done a really interesting job there and has has kind of a really reshaped where you what you think of Cal football because um, he's a defensive guy but seems to appreciate the offense and whatnot. So I think Cal's definitely interesting, and you could easily talk me into them being on the same like par as USC if it's USC's second-best team. Um, and at worst, they're not that much worse. So the North is just so much deeper. Um, I am going to go Oregon uh, over Utah. Um, just because like, like, I just can't think of – like USC obviously is the most talented team, but I'm just not going to buy them. They just haven't proven it to me. Um, so I'll go with the Utes. I don't think the Utes will be great, but I think it'll be like a nine-win team. And I think Oregon will will snipe out Washington again and probably finish with like maybe two losses, uh, maybe one. I don't know. It's I can see the Pac-12 kind of uh, eating itself again, though. 
Um, oh, yeah. Which is, we've, we've talked about this with like all these leagues. Like, you can really talk yourself into the Big Ten, Pac 12, or Big 12 missing the playoff, maybe two of them. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would not bet on the Pac 12 making the playoff, but uh, the, the path is definitely, I think Washington's the most direct path, but Oregon, you could, you could see, you could see where, where they're coming from here. Yeah, I mean, Washington has the schedule to do it. Um, they're, they're the smart school in that they schedule Eastern Washington, Hawaii, and at BYU. Uh, that should get them to 3-0 and in non-conference. Uh, they do have road games in conference at Stanford, at Oregon State, at Colorado, at Oregon. Oh, no, sorry. No, sorry. At Oregon State. So, sorry. Stanford, Arizona, Oregon State, Colorado are the road games. That That's pretty manageable, Stanford being the toughest of those. So then your toughest games, USC, uh, Utah, Oregon, Washington State are all at home. Um this is a team that even if they take a slight step back could still go, you know, 11 and two with a, with a Pac-12 championship game win or even 12 and one. Um, I think the only problem with the schedule, obviously, is if you're competing for a national title, um, people don't look at the Pac-12 schedule all that fondly. They don't look at this schedule in particular all that fondly. Um, if they lose one game, I think they're going to struggle to get into the field. Um, if they can run the table, then obviously, you know, they're looking at, you know, a two or three seed. And that is why we we're going to get uh, 9 a.m. kickoffs out there. So I hope you're excited. I, I, I mean, I'm already up. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> to, run, just, to run directly into our, uh, our ACC network kickoffs. Yeah, I, I, it's such a dumb idea for a lot of reasons. There's, uh, we've discussed, there's better things to do on the West Coast than just watch football games. And like, I love watching football games, but like everybody else is busy doing other stuff because the weather isn't like it is everywhere else in the country. <laughs> in the fall where you can just do the same thing you did in the summer. So everybody's doing that. And you have, you know, kids soccer games and softball practices and everything else that happens on a Saturday before your team. And most of the people out here being from uh, the West coast, in a lot of cases, like your team plays later. So you do all the things that you would normally do on a Saturday and then enjoy your team. And, you know, if you're a super fan like myself or other people, then you watch all the games. If you're a big 10 fan, an ACC fan, you watch most of the games, but like realistically, like you can't have any California schools start that early, like getting up to the Rose bowl or at, or to the Coliseum for a 9am start is, is, is a non-starter like absolute yeah. non-starter. I just think if you're the Pac-12, like you can't pretend like you have the same general football culture as the SEC. So you have to lean in on like getting, giving the product to the fans who want it versus like, trying to be like slate of games that all the all the non-partisan fans are going to watch it's just not realistic like you have to like make sure you're locking down the pac-12 fans and giving them the best experience versus like trying to nab like the the casual college football fan because they're probably going to watch the sec game or the big 10 game instead you and say that but, but but when they're beijing's college team <laughs> yes or you open up the chinese and australian markets and then you make us all look stupid but in that case like time zone Time zones will look even more different. I mean, I, I can't wait until Arizona State renames themselves the uh, Kangaroos or some shit. The Sun, the Sun Kangaroos. The more, it's a more, it's a more godlike uh, mascot. <laughs> her, her, her Herman says, <laughs> shot across Ackman's bow, real hard. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Yeah, they. Uh, although I, I, we don't need to go into this right now. But where does the where does the kangaroo logo and the zips? thing like, where, 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 no, I'm saying like where, where do they meet in the middle of <laughs> uh, 
I don't know. Also, UMKC, I think, is also vegan kangaroos. They are, and they have like well, they used to have a Walt Disney designed logo. And I, I just got... love that there are multiple kangaroos, although one of them is the Zips. Also, KC just does by the ruse, which is great. Yeah, that's actually pretty dope. It's pretty pretty great. Big fan of them. Uh, anyway, that was fun, Dan, as always. <laughs> yes. The first the the only Patchwell preview uh, podcast where we will discuss uh, University of Missouri Kansas City. You're welcome, yeah, listening public. Uh, Dan, anything else? <laughs> anything else before we uh, leave? No, look forward to listening to uh, next week's from uh, probably a plane uh, on the way back from Italy. Um, feel free to tweet me recommendations for Florence, Rome, or Milan if you are on Twitter. Um, I will probably not take them because I have a very full schedule, but uh, I will acknowledge them, and thank you. He's a man of the people. Uh, Dan, have fun in Italy. I, I am jealous, as always. And uh, everyone, be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on any other uh, podcast store that you might listen to us on, and go orange. Forza Zimmy.